The views and opinions of the EDGE podcast do not necessarily represent those of Education USA, U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. Welcome to The Edge, the Education USA Global Exchange Podcast, broadcasting from the central nervous system of our global network, Washington, D.C. And welcome to The Edge, the Education USA Global Exchange. I'm Adina Archer, and this is your official channel for all things U.S. higher ed and international student recruitment and retention. The real, the raw of a growing international network circling the globe and often on the road. Before we dive in, remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite provider. On March 6th, we got this notification that our office was closing. There had been meetings for weeks trying to track how this thing was developing. The news was just all over the place. So when they said that we all had to work from home, my first thought was, what are the students going to do? What about our international community? What happens to us now? Today's show is about where we've been, where we are, and what's next. It's about resilience. Thanks for being here. as that ball was dropping, few if any of us probably thought of where we'd be only a few months later. Today we're going to be visited by the inspirational stories of three of our Education USA Regional Educational Advising Coordinators, or REACs, who will reflect on the past, share innovations from the present, and speak to us about how we can face a hopeful future. Melissa, as the REACT for the Middle East and North Africa, go ahead and kick us off with a little scene setting. I don't think I really saw it getting as serious and as crazy and as big as it did. As a REAC, we're engaging primarily with advisors and with the higher ed community. So we generally travel a lot. This was end of February 2020, right before everything started closing down. You know, the last trip I took, I remember I had ordered a face mask that had the little filter thing in it. And I was on the plane and I took a picture of myself like, oh, you know, just in case. And this was before masks were a thing. I almost felt a little bit odd. I think I was in that in between of like things are seeming bad. Are they that bad? Let me just do this just in case. And then you start hearing, you know, more so the conversations in terms of should we be doing meetings in person? Are students being allowed to go to classes back home? So there was there was that kind of concern happening um, right in that in end of February, early March. That was really where I guess the reality of something big is going on, where it was really not just something that I was hearing about here in the region, but that the conversation was happening everywhere. Thinking back, I don't think I can pinpoint a date. Do you remember about where, what you were doing when you first heard that that some of the first institutions in the U.S. were actually going off campus, they were actually closing their doors? That one, I think, felt more like it blurred into a lot. 
the kind of instant that I remember and realized and was like, okay, this is happening. I was supposed to travel to the U.S. and we were, I want to say less, I want to say five days away from traveling. And we got the email that said that this decision has been made. We're going to have to cancel this in person. Travel has been canceled. And so that really was the moment where I said, wow, okay, things are changing. There's no precedent in any, any recent memory for people to say, well, this is how we're going to handle this. This is what we're going to do. That was the turning point for me. And so that's where the awareness started to kick in of, oh, wait a minute, I need to let me check in on what's happening on U.S. campuses. Our advisors were getting uh, messages from students who were in the U.S. or advisors reaching out to them to kind of just gauge how are things there. Because as long as travel was still happening, even with masks, even with protections, even with, you know, limited numbers or whatever people were doing, um, there was still travel happening. And so once you see that starting to stop and get canceled, uh, that's when things were, I guess, really real. Well, you've got virtual advisors, right? Yes, it wasn't completely new. We have a very complex uh, region with things happening within countries and between countries that are challenging and with different conflicts. And so we have virtual advisors for Iran, for Syria. We have a virtual advisor for Yemen, although the advisor is in country, um, mobility within the country and things happening in that vicinity are complicated. So that's a virtual advising setup within country. And we also have one for Libya. So we have an advisor based in Tunisia, but virtually advising for Libya. I want to be very mindful of using the word lucky in this instance, but it sounds like you had at least some precedent for virtual within your region. Nonetheless, was there anything that surprised you? Yes. One of the lessons I have taken away from all of this is a reminder that you can't just go from in-person to virtual. You transition how you deliver your content from in-person to virtual, but the how you deliver that virtual content also has to shift because you have to be mindful of the competing demands, the distractions that exist. Given the various challenges that some people have um, with reaching uh, students, and not just because of location, but we have bandwidth issues. So now you have students who may or may not be able to get online within it. Well, if they can get online with enough bandwidth to attend a webinar, we have um, countries with electricity shortages. And so they might be getting cut off all of a sudden. Um, and then you also have the issue of space where if you are now not going to school, parents aren't working, countries are in very strict lockdowns, everybody is at home and not everybody has an, a spare room that you can use for an office. So now you have multiple people in this confined space for extended periods of time, potentially all trying to you know, either be online or attend meetings or do schooling, um, attend webinars. And so you have that additional complexity of how can you focus? 
How do you access what you need? How do you avoid distractions um, for either the recipient or those who are delivering the sessions as well? Once you got everyone up to speed with the virtual pivot and they were doing their day-to-day -day role in a different context, what did you see in terms of the students interacting virtually? Did you have more engagement, less engagement? Uh, so it, it's mixed. I would say it's mixed. I think there was a sweet spot and I can't pinpoint the exact timing of that sweet spot because I think it varied depending on the countries where people were home. There was kind of this, what is happening? What are we doing? We don't know what's going on. We have nothing to do. Um, some schools were not equipped or in a position to continue schooling virtually, at least not immediately, and especially not when there was no clear picture of how long this situation was going to be going on. So th there was this gap. And I think during that window of time, there was high engagement from students because they weren't doing anything else. The, the webinars were really providing them an opportunity to continue some engagement, getting information, um, especially for those that were already looking um, seriously at starting an application or starting their search um, to narrow their institutions. This really gave them the focused time to be able to do that because they didn't have the other competing priorities going on. Um, and so if there was that little sweet spot, I think that we were able to really um, benefit from having the number of students and the attention of students during that time. I think we started to lose that a little bit as schools then started to realize this is a much longer term situation. We need to put measures in place to address the, the learning that is necessary to continue. And so countries that weren't able to do that, um, you know, started looking to other creative ideas where certain local TV stations were delivering classes at designated times. But so once now you have that schooling aspect brought back into the picture, you also then have students having to divide up their time, in a sense, and to shift to learning in this context. So those ebbs and flows of those pockets happened. I think that that's where we would start to see the attendance numbers shifting in programming. It seems like there might have been some peaks and valleys in there where you needed to pause and reset your virtual strategy. We'll be talking more about that in the next segment. But for now, let's give our audience a visual. If you had to graph this on a chart, what would your experience look like? It would look like all scribbles, to be honest. Um, I think it depending on the country and where things were. So there, there was a mix of things happening. So in certain countries, especially those that had a good response, and, I, and, and in terms of good response, I mean, they have a... Uh, and I'll, I'll, to give an example specifically, I'll say in the Gulf countries where you do have some solid hospital um, availability, the countries are wealthy enough to really bring back people if they need to. Um, you, you have stability that's within the country. Um, what you see there is about 
getting people home and keeping them safe and bringing your students back, having them you know, with their families. You have other places where they're dealing with many other crises. And so then in that instance, you are seeing parents and families dealing with the very personal struggles of losing jobs, not having income, um, and trying to navigate you know, shortages of all sorts of things, necessities, food, medications, access to healthcare. So you have families in those instances who are really looking for ways to have their kids have a better life and a better opportunity. The best example of this um, to specify a country would be Lebanon, who has just been one crisis after another, after another, after another. Um, and even through all of that, which they're still dealing with um, so many things within the country, you still have a high level of interest in parents wanting more for their kids. Um, and if there's any way for them to make it possible for them to go study in the U.S., they're going to do that. Melissa, thank you so much for all of your perspectives so far. We're going to take a brief break right now. And when we get back, we'll be welcoming another Education USA React, this time from Mexico City, Mexico. Maria Mercedes Salmon, stay tuned. Hi, I'm an Education USA advisor based in Lagos, Nigeria. Did you know that Nigeria is the 10th highest sending country of international students to the US and we have a population of over 200 million citizens? Well, I'm personally extending an invitation to you to visit and recruit students from Nigeria, one of the most diverse countries on earth. We have five official advising centers in Nigeria and the embassy in Abuja and consulate in Lagos will support your visit. There are even direct flights between the United States and Nigeria. So what are you waiting for? Connect with us today via email at lagoseducationusa at state.gov to schedule a virtual or live visit. We hope to see you soon. And welcome back from the break. We're here for the next part of Resilience with React Maria Mercedes Salmon. Hi, Noel. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here joining you. So Melissa teed up initial reactions to the changes felt in 2020. I'd like you to take us a little bit deeper, exploring some interesting innovations that you saw occur along the way. To begin, why don't you tell us a brief story of what was unfolding within your region? Um, here in Mexico, where I'm based, uh, things were happening potentially at a slower pace than in other countries in the hemisphere, in other countries around the world. But let me let me give you a very specific example. Noel, we had um, we had partner with some Central American countries, El Salvador and Costa Rica, with Colombia for the Colombia STEM tour. And that the first part of the tour, which was in several cities in Colombia, did take 
place. But right when the, the group of participants was ready to go into El Salvador, we started hearing about closing and countries closing up their borders. And um, in the last stop was Costa Rica. So we had to make the hard call of canceling the event in Costa Rica. Even before we knew what was happening in the country, the government had an issue, measures at that time, but we knew it was coming. So we wanted to be sure that we put, we put everybody's safety first and not risk um, anyone traveling to Costa Rica. What are some of the takeaways of this experience that you think might help our audience? I believe that one of the biggest lessons learned um, after these 18 months for all of us is that the virtuality allows us to reach audiences that we wouldn't have been able to reach through an in-person event. We were scheduled to have these fair only in San Jose. Um, it was um, a couple of hours, two or three hours, one day, and that was it. That wouldn't allow for students from other provinces um, of Costa Rica to come to the event. But when we hosted our event virtually, we saw students coming from many different other provinces. Um, and, and that just has been the trend and the pattern since then, um, we notice how our increased engagements um, have, have uh, had impact with the student audiences, the teachers, the schools, and other locations, which we would normally visit as part of our outreach. Um, but we would do it once or maybe twice a year if it's a small country where you can travel to. But if it is a large country, then maybe once a year. And now we are able to be in touch with them and offer special targeted programming for them from the comfort <laughs> of our, our office, um, home office or our office office. So your numbers spiked. That's very interesting. Any other changes? I will say, Noel, that we saw increase in diversity of the audience, um, but also from the participants. Um, and <laughs> taking uh, advantage of that new trend that we started seeing new schools, new institutions that hadn't traveled to the region before, um, types of institutions that had increased uh, interest in connecting and engaging with the initiatives and the potential uh, markets in this region we also saw that we had a bigger pot of knowledge and wisdom and content that we could actually share with our students, with our counselors, with our teachers locally. Mm -hmm. Then what happened? The increases in the in the requests to do presentations, to do webinars, to do information sessions, of course, skyrocketed um, for for our region and in general. I think our Education USA network saw this increase all of a sudden in the volume of interest to do more of these um, type of engagement. But sometimes success can be a bit of a double-edged sword. How did you manage all of that? I think that's going to be something that all of our listeners struggle with as we go back to normal is the wonderful benefits that we've gained from a new virtual skill set 
competing with the need to still go back and do some networking and make connections person to person. We couldn't possibly manage it all. We created a regional webinars working group for the North America, Central America, and Caribbean region. I brought together a group of senior advisors from Mexico, several Central American countries, and several Caribbean countries. And um, what we did was we started organizing a series of weekly sessions that would touch on a topic and with the way that our sessions are designed are also um, with the interest of delivering something tangible for the student, a resource, something that it's going to help them develop a skill or is going to address one specific concern or challenge that students face when they are going through the process of applying to a U.S. institution or, you know, the process of adapting to their campus. We thought it was only, I mean, we saw so many things happen last year that there were so many interesting topics that we could talk about. Melissa's often talked about the knack between doing something in person versus delivering it virtually and this bubble that we were in of uh, successful virtual presentations and then deep valleys where people had kind of tuned us out because of things like Zoom fatigue. How did you keep it fresh? How did you make this work in a virtual landscape? The way we designed the session was not just a tutorial on how to fill out the common app, for example. It was more of let's address the 10 most frequent questions that our Education USA advisors get from students when they are helping them through the process. So questions such as, what are the extracurricular activities that I should mention here? What is a weighted or an unweighted GPA? Um, what, you know, so those very specific, specific things that in a way could be, could be addressing the needs and the trends of what happens within the domestic U.S. Um, K-12 educational system, but that it isn't necessarily happening outside of the United States and our students are not familiar with what those things mean. Um, and so we guide them through the process, um, you know, or we have conversations with them about the letters of recommendation. We had a special session on letters of recommendation, not only for students, also for teachers, so that they know how they can help their students better when um, they were completing their applications and submitting. Or we held um, a CSS profile session that was designed for parents. We hosted another session um, that was on the common application for counselors, um, because there are a lot of counselors that don't know what their role should be in helping the students complete the common app. It sounds like your foray into the virtual realm didn't just attract a student audience, but you also prepared webinars that were targeting parents and high school counselors to help them have a better understanding of an education in the United States and how to support their students. You mentioned a moment ago this larger pot of knowledge that you also garnered through this virtual transition. So you weren't just seeing more students participating in your virtual events, students who perhaps were outside of major city centers and now didn't have to travel physically 
to get to a presentation. But also, you saw this flood of institutional representatives from the United States who, at present, couldn't physically travel to various countries within your region. And therefore, we're reaching out to Education USA centers more than ever to figure out how to connect virtually, perhaps through these webinars. Can you tell me more about how you utilize this larger pot of knowledge? And I will tell you that this is where we saw so many great examples of innovation from our higher education institution colleagues um, because they were coming up with these great ideas or we were suggesting, why don't we try these? Um, Let's invite some faculty to speak to the students so that they can maybe do a mini lecture for them and the students can see what an online class is. I like that faculty approach. That's not easy, though, because faculty, of course, are always very busy on campus with lectures, with preparing their research. If you're tenure track, you've got a lot of objectives and deliverables to meet key milestones along the way there. So how did you go about the process of getting buy-in and participation from institutional faculty? Absolutely. Well, there were two ways in which we did this. First, we started talking to the admissions officers who were interested in doing sessions. And so we started proposing would you mind bringing a friend? Um, You know, can you reach out to um, a doctoral, uh, you know, PhD professor who can speak to the students about the differences between a master's degree and a PhD? Um, Can you bring uh, somebody to speak to the students about the research that they're working on? And they immediately would think of somebody who would be helpful. Um, Somebody who maybe spoke the language. If we had an audience that was only Spanish speaker, we were, if we were meeting with a group of Caribbean students, they were trying to reach out to faculty who were diaspora from this region. And so it just, it was fantastic, the, the results, because people can connect with that. They see it firsthand. They can ask the questions to the actual professor, the person who's running that. Um, the other great thing that we saw was the opportunity for students to engage in virtual research um, experiences. Several higher education institutions throughout the U.S. were offering these for free. And this is something that I think should be, should stay, um, to be quite honest. (laughs) Wow, that's really amazing to have a virtual research opportunity as an undergraduate student. Maybe you have some job experience in secondary school or some side jobs while you're an undergraduate student at college. But to be honest, when you graduate, your resume doesn't usually have a lot of real world experience that directly ties to your degree. And so this is a great launch pad for students as they make their way into their professional life or they go on to do additional degrees. Absolutely. And not only for that, but we have a lot of students here who are already enrolled in college, but who don't have the opportunity to do research, uh, even less they could dream about a publication or having their name being as part of a team of, you know, within the research group. And so 
for for them to have access to this opportunity is such a great eye opener. Um, like you said, it enhances their resume, but they also start doing or in, um, enforcing, strengthening the networks and thinking about graduate school in the United States, you know, which is something positive for us as well, because they have established those connections. Um, and even if they decide to not apply to that institution where they did that research, um, the virtual research uh, exchange, they will probably have a mentor in uh, the professor or uh, those graduate assistants that work with the students through that experience. So, you know, things that we never saw before and that we now are maximizing <laughs> and making sure that other institutions know that there are possibilities. Um, if you have great ideas, you can share them with us and we will be sure to, to find a way to help you connect, um, to help you uh, disseminate. Well, we have Luke Yim, one of our REACTs from the East Asia Pacific region on deck. He'll be coming up in just a moment to talk more about Future State. Let's go ahead and set the stage for that now though. As we wrap up this segment, I want us to pivot to a conversation about what comes next, because we're probably going to be in this hybrid scenario for a while where we're still doing things virtually, but we're going to want to revisit some of the ways that we used to do in-person interactions. So we're going to need to find some sort of a balance here. How have you begun to conceptualize this with your team? With my team, what we determined was we first thought about what worked really well in the virtual environment and that we would want to keep. And for us, it's not about duplicating. It's not about doing that in the virtual form and also in the in-person form. It's not about that. It's about keeping it virtual, yet looking at what works in person that can be traded off, um, that we still need to be doing in person and using the space and the time that we have for those events. Is there a question that we should be asking ourselves to help determine this? What are those activities? What are those workshops that the students will, will benefit from, from immediate feedback or that immediate assessment, right? So writing a resume or writing, you know, doing the first draft of, of your personal statement where you can have interactive, dynamic um elements to that program. But if it's just an information session, there's really, you know, an advantage to doing that virtually. You don't want to welcome a group of students, make them come to your center just because they need to receive this information when they can have access to it via a webinar or doing a one-on-one -on -one advising session. Um, we can do that virtually. You know, they we can sit down and that's probably more convenient for everyone because the student decides that they don't have to travel an hour. I mean, in a huge city, just think about Mexico City, right? Where if you live in the south of the city, you have to travel one hour to get to where our center is. 
and then one center back, one hour back, sorry. And that's a lot of time. I could imagine, to be honest, I'm not even a fan of taking the local metro here without traffic if I don't have to. And with the advent of all these virtual tools, if this virtual space provides a better and more convenient experience for our participants and to a greater effect, it doesn't make sense to do otherwise. <laughs> exactly, to do a one-on-one meeting. So some of those things will remain virtual. And then we're looking at what opportunities do we have to be more efficient with our in-person programming? How can we maximize that one-on-one, that in-person engagement that we can have through certain activities? So the idea is to categorize and separate, not necessarily duplicate. We always like to say, be where the students are. And so uh, there's this one video I love of a representative doing, showing the students uh, doing a campus tour with a GoPro camera, riding his bike. (laughs) And so, you know, those things stick, right? It's like thinking outside the box um, in ways in which you can connect, make that click, you know, in that one moment um, by, by doing something special. And then, you know, just thinking about getting ready to come back, you know, it's a nice preamble. Um, It's not, you just showed up, we do something special. When you do come, it's going to be exciting for the student to finally meet the rep, rode the bike, you know, so it's a chain, right? Exactly. Well, it's been great talking with you and getting all of your amazing insights. Up next, Luke Yim, East Asia Pacific React, who's going to be closing us out for this first episode. Stay tuned. Inspiring, impactful, on point. See what attendees are saying about the annual Education USA Forum happening August 2nd to the 4th in Washington, D.C. Get the latest from the field. Network with International Education USA team members. Catch up with the higher ed community and select from a full slate of timely session topics. We'll see you in Washington. We're back from the break for the third and final portion of our episode on resilience and joined by React Luke Yim of the East Asia and Pacific region. Hello, happy to be here. Luke, I know that you were listening in on part one when we were chatting with Melissa and she was doing a lot of scene setting for us about where she was, where the advisors were, and the things that she witnessed unfolding on the ground during this quick pivot into the unknown when all of this went down, what, year and a half, almost two years ago. Now it's <laughs> it's hard to believe it's two years already. And then Maria Mercedes picked up that ball in part two and discussed some interesting innovations and successes that she saw along the way. I'd like you to continue on the topic of what the international student landscape looks like now and help us to think forward as everyone is anxious to get back out on the road and do what we do best. Well, definitely. Um, So I joined Education USA back in February 2020. So as soon as I joined, uh, the pandemic began. The initial reaction was just shock and panic. And we were addressing people just not knowing what's going on and all that initial fear. New questions being raised. And of course, there are no immediate answers to those questions. So uh, it was a confusing period for all of us. But the second year, 2021, I think we were dealing with a slightly different set of emotions. So a slightly different type of resilience required. The second year, we were kind of entering the phase of exhaustion and pessimism. Uh, We didn't expect the pandemic to last this long. Um, So people were starting to lose hope, the hope about 
uh, possibly returning to normal by fall 2021. And that affected students as well. Students were kind of following the same type of resilience story, initial shock and panic were the first year, uh, but they were able to kind of transition into online learning and the virtual programming. And they were okay with uh, all of those uh, new changes for some time, but over time uh, entering uh, two years, everybody was feeling exhausted and uh, somewhat pessimistic. Are they even interested in the United States anymore? I mean, you're talking about all this uncertainty. Isn't it just easier for them to go to a university in their home country? Are we seeing people walk away from a potential higher education degree in the United States now? Because, you know, still can't fly freely. You still have a lot of COVID restrictions, restrictions on campus. Not sure if another variant's going to blow our way. Like, do students want the U.S. anymore? Well, of course, those are factors that are influencing uh, some students' decisions, of course. But when it comes down to studying abroad, many students are kind of building around their dream for many years, and they wouldn't give, give it up that easily. Of course, they're in a small way, uh, the, the way they approach like uh, study abroad might be affected, but their decision to study abroad, if their mind has been set on studying in the United States for years, that will remain uh, relatively unaffected. And what's kind of affecting them now uh, might be issues like you know, inability to get tickets or, or visa in time and, and just dealing with the stress. But I think I, I, I do believe that students remain very adventurous and it, it actually will depend on, on how we as university recruiters, uh, university representatives, uh, communicate with students moving forward. That's good news, actually, for our listeners. It sounds like the ones who are already in the pipeline have had the stream for a long time. And in spite of recent adversity, they're not going to walk away from it. Um, what about the up and coming generation? The ones that maybe aren't even in secondary school yet, or maybe they are in secondary school. Did you see any change? Are you hearing any changes, at least in the East Asia Pacific region? Because they weren't in the pipeline. The dream of our U.S. higher education for them is a relatively new one. This new generation we're talking about will definitely ask questions that the current generations uh, wouldn't ask. For students, uh, I would say that we talk about things like affordability, return on investment, some of the, some of these questions that students ask. But you know, the big question behind uh, all of these uh, concerns and questions and uh, elements is the question: How do I find myself uh, or my place in this unpredictable and uncertain world? The world is becoming more uncertain and more unpredictable, and the, and the students are question are asking that question, and they are anxious and they're worried, they will be looking for assurance in a way. Would you say that that's a change that COVID has brought about or maybe something that was in the making and just got accelerated by COVID? Or would you say that that was a trend that would have hit us anyway, where these students are thinking more so about what happens after college? I think it, it was a combination. It's a combination. We were kind of seeing that trend uh, even before COVID uh, issues like return on investment and, and asking questions about the value of their degrees. So in, in a way, all of those factors have been accelerated by COVID. But issues like safety or equity, many, many of these questions um, the students are now asking uh, are, are something fairly new to the field. The criteria they look at uh, to kind of evaluate institutions and make selections would be a lot longer, so to speak. As I mentioned before, um, and now it's, well, some students could may have 
uh, chosen their institution based on just a few factors like prestige or uh, availability of community of like, international students. But now people will have more questions and, and they will ask things like, you know, is with the, with the degree that I get from this institution, uh, is it going to be worth it when I, you know, take it back to my home country? And uh, in the past, you know, when you when you go to YouTube, you would see like videos like in a day uh, of the life of a university student in the United States. And then, uh, you know, those would attract students to those campuses. But now they will want to actually have a sneak peek into the life of a graduate, uh, an international student who is using a U.S. higher education institution degree to pursue a, a meaningful life uh, when they return to their home country. And it, it is important that we are able to address this question. Where are the parents in all this? And I know that could vary from country to country, region to region, family to family, but from what you've seen, do you have any insights around parents now? I think uh, it's important to, to realize that parents are as anxious as students. They are not able to provide the help students need at this era of pandemic. We kind of need to look into that, the fact that parents are going through a lot. Parents usually always have lots of questions, but there were lots of parents who were, were very certain about their, their children's path and their, their children's future. So they were pretty set and they were very confident of about providing that guidance to their children moving forward. So, uh, but now uh, parents are also feeling that they need a, a, a support and they need more information. And, and they're also asking for more assurance uh, when they are reaching out to university representatives or uh, school counselors. So if you had a couple of quick tips for any of our listeners about how they can provide these new assurances to parents or students, what would some of your recommendations be? Right. Personal touch. It's important, especially in our region, in the East Asian Pacific, that I've got an individualized approach and communication. And then the overall experience of um, having a good communication with a university representatives leaves an impression uh, on the student about that institution. The parents are carefully watching how university communicates uh, that information with students, how they share. And then is that information just general information available to public for their own interpretation or the, is the university making the effort to make that information more specific to international students? And then and that's where the student parents might feel more confidence about the university. Hey, this university is able to get that level of communication for my child. Then this is the institution that I can trust. But it's hard, right? Because the universities get hundreds, thousands of inquiries. So just finding this balance. Exactly. Exactly. But the way we represent really kind of builds an image of that institution. So it's really important when we communicate with students and parents to not just focus on what we convey, but how we convey the attitude and the emotion, how properly we respond to each inquiry. Uh, a lot oftentimes when students have questions, uh, they get answers like, check our website. Here's the link. I hate when people tell me that. <laughs> Check our video or there's a webinar coming on. Yeah, yeah exactly. So when their question is like directed elsewhere, uh, you know, that might be the best response you may have for now, but they might appreciate a more delicate and a kind of a more of a caring response. Yeah. So you don't have to like send students a super long email, but I think even if you're not able to provide answer, if you can still make students you know, feel like, hey, I don't have all the answers, but I can at least trust this person. I, I would call that a success. In right, right. 
And the parents, we also have an added complication because often the students are at least bi or multilingual, right? Especially if they're thinking about studying the U.S., presumably they have a certain skill level of English language already acquired. But it's tricky going back to this thought of the parents, right? Because you also have to provide this additional support to them. But English may not be a language in which they easily communicate, but they're the ones who are, you know, pushing the student <laughs> from a young age going, yes, U.S. higher ed, good, good. This is this is my plan for you. Follow it. How you're saying that more questions are coming up, especially during COVID. How do you work with them? That's tricky, right? It is tricky, but I also see it as a window of opportunity. Like you said, uh, lots of countries in Asia, parents have a very strong grip on their children's future. And they uh, sometimes they just make the decision for the students. But now, because all of us are facing a time of uncertainty, now they're asking questions not uh, with those decisions not being made. So a lot of times parents, when they come to information session before COVID, they already have a list of, of universities that they want their children to get into. And they just ask questions about, so what's the cutoff score for their SAT and the requirements more than uh, like a question about, is this the right place for my a child? But now uh, I think there is room for us to kind of bring that questions up to the, stu- uh, to the parents because some of the things that have been taken for granted for parents in the past are no longer valid. So then for universities who do communication exceptionally well, they have a unique opportunity right now to position themselves maybe towards the top of a student or parent's list, whereas before the student or parent maybe weren't even considering that institution. It sounds like you're saying that there's this opening. Right, right. Where do you see things in the next year or two? Well, I'm not a prophet, but what I can say, you know, from what I see in my region is that now we are seeing a lot of interest from our governments, local governments, in training the next generation. I think we can expect an increased level of support from just national governments, Ministry of Higher Education, willing to make more investment in training the young generation because all of these, many of our countries have been affected by the pandemic economically, and they need the young generation. They need the young generation to be employable, to be able to lead their countries out of the struggle that they have economically through the pandemic and to really drive that economic recovery. So that means it could just mean more scholarship available, but also it could mean some new programs where U.S. university representatives can join forces with the local government partners to train the young generation. Okay, so there's a light at the end of this tunnel. We've been talking about, you know, what's been taking away or change, but it sounds like as some things are going away, as they say, one door closes, another opens. It sounds like the government is even more keenly interest, interested than ever in the educational future of their citizens. Are there new sectors that you think might open up where students are going to start pursuing degrees in those fields? Well, uh, there are lots of sectors. The ASEAN, uh, the member state just signed a 2025 digital economy master plan. Included in this master plan is their desire to train the young generation to be trained in the field, the digital field, the industrial revolution fields. And so, you know, there is a huge focus on STEM, like science, technology, engineering, math, but also um, business. But we're not just solely focused on STEM or engineering. I I think there is a considerable interest for humanity, fields that require creative thinking, Um, And then a critical thinking that drives innovation. Luke, any final thoughts as we close this section on resilience? 
I recently heard a speech by a popular Korean motivational speaker, Mi Kyung Kim, who shared an interesting philosophical take on what COVID means and the two types of people that will come about as an outcome of the pandemic era. In her view, COVID-19, in a way, is a question to all of us. It's a big question. It's one of the biggest and most serious questions we've ever faced in our lives. Um, and it is an important question, I think. I know here's the new future and there is no going back. And ready or not, uh, this future is here and, and there will be two types of people, people who will still live in the past, just hoping that things will be back to the way things were. And there will be the type of people who will embrace the question and take it more seriously and move into the future. And five years from now, there will be a very big difference in the outcome of you know, whatever decision you make and how you respond to that question. You're absolutely right, Luke, and you've left us with something really deep to think about. Sadly, that's all the time we have, but I just want to say, Luke, Melissa, Maria, Mercedes, thank you all so much for this wonderful conversation on resilience and for kicking off one of our pilot episodes of our brand new Edge podcast. I want to thank our entire team. This has been a labor of love. To our audience, we hope that you enjoyed our content and we'll be back for future episodes. The views and opinions of the EDGE podcast do not necessarily represent those of Education USA, U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government.